of no challenges remaining. I would argue that they're always Asian-infused, but whatever. Yes, true. Well, <laughs> we have an Asian over there, my co-host, Courtney Nguyen, and I'm Ben Rothenberg, and we are struggling with sleep and general life function as a result of these tournaments in Asia that haven't been very good. So that's been fun. It has been. It's uh, It's been brutal. How's uh, Have you been sleeping during the day, Ben? Has that I, been how I have. I mean, I'm partially... It's, it's sort of... I've committed the sleep schedule part, but not as much the really following the tournament that closely because for yeah. some reason, all the matches I've watched uh, from Tokyo and I watched a little bit of Bangkok too. I saw some of Donald Young there. All the matches I've seen have been just brutal, brutal quality. Just really bad. Yeah. The tennis uh, got left in New York, to say the least. New York was a pretty good tournament and then Tokyo has been bad. Guangzhou, I saw some of that. I saw some of the lower Robson there. That was that was pretty decent quality for sure. Yeah, it was a good final. But Seoul, not so much. Tokyo, really everything has been just rough. But, it's been pretty brutal. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think that is? I just think I mean a maybe some of our expectations are a little bit higher mm-hmm. because we're coming off of the U.S. Open and uh, particularly Tokyo. It's the first time that you know, all, all of these top players are playing and they're playing each other from such an early stage in the tournament. So, you know, you're getting really great matches on paper, like in the second rounds and going forward. So you kind of like are excited to see these players again and then they step on court and it's just absolutely horrible. Um, but I think a lot of it is, I generally do tend to discount the first major tournament after a slam. Okay. Um, I just, I think that, you know, just people are tired, they're fatigued, they're kind of still getting their brain into it. But this Tokyo tournament's just been not good. So no, far. it really hasn't. Did you see the stat lines in Wozniacki Lee yesterday? I didn't. I fell asleep in the middle of the third set. Oh, God. Let me see if I can find this. I, I tweeted it. I know that Caroline, uh, Caroline won in three sets. Yeah. She won. She was the winner. But she only hit six winners in the entire match in three sets. And and Lena hit seventy six unforced errors. That's impressive. So and they were bad. I mean, they were like the some of the ones that I saw were like shakes that were that Sam Sozer couldn't even hit if she tried. I mean, they were really bad shakes. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it's a little, it was it was rough. But uh, the good the good news from Tokyo is that um, Momo Chan is there. Woot! I think it's all. It's sort of the spirit animal of the WTA, or of the Asian swing, anyway. The fair yep. to say? Should be the spirit animal. Should be the one for the entire WTA series, like season. I mean, Momo Chan is just the best. It is an adorable, plush, um, you know, mascot of the Torrey Pan Pacific Open. It's, I forget what it's what it translates to, but it's peach something, because I know Momo is peach. Okay. Um, like Momofuku, lucky peach. Um, okay. It's just happy. It's not that bad at tennis. No, it's pretty good for somebody who's like in this like has to be like very encumbering mascot outfit. Mm-hmm. Was playing some ten and under tennis or whatever they call it in Japan mm-hmm. against uh, Andrea Pekovic, and you know making contact. Yep. It was a fair kiss because Pekovic was holding a 
camcorder, whatever the new Sony Ericsson camcorder type thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was cool. It's good to see Andrea Pekovic back entertaining on court. Exactly. Even if just for a glimpse, because she yes. lose in the first round to Petra Martic, I think, after bageling her in the first set. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, been, it's been a slow comeback for her it since is. in this round. It's going to get tough because she's defending finalist points in Beijing next week. Yes. And those are a lot of points. That's a big tournament. And That's so, like a, That counts like Miami, that tournament. Yeah, and I think she's already ranked as low as 60, I thought. Yeah. Right? So, so she could probably be out of the top 100. Which makes sense. I mean, she's played like a handful of matches all year. So, yeah. I don't think she paced her space to her comeback. Not that she was obviously intending to do this, but I don't think it got spaced out the way to allow for protected ranking, though. So mm. she could be, she'll have to get some wild cards. But I feel like she is someone who will get wild cards to that problem because, you know, people like her. What, what What's the protected ranking rule? Uh, it's You have to be out for a certain amount of time in a row. Uh, I, I think it's like at least six months or something. In other words, she should never have come back to try and secure like Olympic qualify or prepare right. for the Olympics. Like right, but but that was a, but she got a different injury there was the thing that's that made true. it sort of less uh, second guessable. I don't know. That's fair. Just bad luck for her. Just bad luck for Petco, as has been, you know, the case for you know most of her career, really. Yeah. Because we miss Petco. Yeah. Well, I, hopefully, hopefully we'll see her soon. I have no one to talk to about block party in the press room and now. It's a bummer. No. You could try talking to somebody about it. I could, but I, I just didn't know anything what you were talking about. You no, know, I'm I don't have the one direction connection to Laura Robson that you do. So I'm you at a bit of a loss. You do. I, I heard you were listening to some one direction earlier today though. I did hear I, that from a source. Uh, yeah, that source being me on Twitter. <laughs> uh-huh. Mhm. Mhm. It's not my fault cuz one of my friends had mentioned one of the songs and then we all got into a discussion about it and then I started listening to it. Just like comparative One Direction literature. What was? How do you discuss a One Direction song? No, she said she only knew like two lyrics of whatever the beautiful song, uh-huh. and uh, and then we were kind of jokingly quoting lyrics from that song to each other, and then I couldn't think of any more lyrics because I don't actually know that song very well. So I listened to the song again, and that's when I realized I was listening to One Direction voluntarily. It's 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 a beautiful thing to reference. So so not. <laughs> And anyway, this is a slow week, so we got a lot of, well, we got some questions and stuff, so we might jump to that a little earlier than usual, just because there's not much else happened. I mean, since we last left you, we have a episode you guys haven't heard yet that wrapped up the rest of the second part of the U.S. Open episode, which 16B, so this is 17. We're having technical difficulties, so yeah. it's we're, not... We're, we're, trying, we're doing some renovations around here, pardon our dust. Exactly. In shopping malls. Yep. But we have some questions that we'll get to, and we'll try to do ones that don't overlap with what we already said and you haven't heard. So if we don't use yours, apologies, but hopefully you understand in context. Yes. So, Courtney, do you have one you want to start with? Sure. You've gotten? Can do, can do. Well, this one I feel like we may have, I think, addressed a few weeks ago in a podcast, uh, okay. but, the, but the finals did wrap up so you know things have kind of moved forward so i guess it's still worth talking about but um rob shu s-c-h-u asked what is up with world team tennis do you think it has a thriving future oh ben you are the world team tennis guru because the washington castles your hometown team did 
absolutely dominant. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you. May I just give a quick plug to Washington sports in general? Like the cover story on Sports Illustrated um, this week is about like, hey, look, Washington teams are winning at sports. Isn't that weird? Which is true because <laughs> it's sadly I've been an Orioles fan for a long time, which is not which is Washington for everybody who grew up here because the Nats have only been here for what like seven years. So anybody who has lived in D.C. longer than that and cared about baseball was an Orioles fan. And now the Orioles and Nats are both in playoff position. So people are very excited about that. Um, and the Redskins have a quarterback, which is nice, even though we're letting him get killed every game and we're only one and two. But, you know, selection stats. There is hope. There isn't usually hope here. Right. But maybe the thing that started all that is the Washington Castles, who have now won 32 straight games, uh, matches, whatever you call them, Events. Yeah, what do you call them? I call it, I, think, I, I feel I like think it's actually a tie, but it's it's not though. They definitely don't use tie in theirs. I think they call it matches. Because they yeah. call they call games like games we have in tennis, like first to four points. Mm-hmm. And they call the sets events. Ah, because a set is like guy like men yeah. singles, women singles, mixed doubles, doubles. Right. Yeah. So Venus Williams went to play the finals weekend, which was held in the Charleston Stadium, and which is which is pretty rare to have like a marquee player go down and do that, um, because usually a lot of times they just make a a certain preset number of guest appearances for their that they're contracted to do, and then they leave. Um, But she, you know played a lot this year and really, really seemed to be enjoying it. It was not always a fun year for her, but this did seem to be something that she really did enjoy the whole time. And she went down to play in the finals and got into two matches that were tied going into the last event, which was women's singles, and won over first Ashley Harkle Road, which was a surprisingly not straightforward matchup, given that you know Venus Williams is still a competing tour player and no one has heard from Ashley Harkle Road in like five years. Um... Although she still looked like she, I, I think Ashley Hawk Road, I don't know exactly what her story is, but I think she just, she could come back if she wanted to, because she's not that old. Yeah, she's just a mom. I, I don't think yeah. that she wants to necessarily travel or stuff like that. And Someone who's really taking the part-timer thing to heart. I mean, yeah. it's just like, I'm actually not going on tour, but I'll still pick up a racket every summer if yeah. you want me to. Um, and then Coco Vandaway in the final, which was pretty close. Um yeah, so, I mean, as to the general question, um, I, I don't know that World Team Tennis can ever be like, I mean, what is the goal for that to be a big thing? Is it never going to compete with, like, ATP WTA tours? I don't think so, because just because the foundation is so set there. And it used to, actually. There used to be a time back when it first started, around when it first started in the 70s, when big players would skip the French Open to play World Team Tennis because it was in a different part of the schedule then. And, like, so you had people like Chris Everett, who was dominating the French Open, um, taking off French Opens to go play World Team Tennis because there was weird. probably more money involved. Um, uh, and, yeah. And, and, and back then, like, the whole counting slams thing we do, now which is such a big thing, like, oh, Serena has 15, Everett has 18, blah, blah, blah. That wasn't, like, as big a thing back then. When you think about it, because the open air had only been going on for, what, like, I don't know, less than a decade at that point. Yeah, they were trying to make money. They were trying to make money. And so if you can go play World Team Tennis in Madison Square Garden or whatever, that's going to be more money than the French Open, which really sort of a forgotten part of slam history. French Open was really in bad shape for 
a while, a couple decades, they were like paying appearance fees to players to go play there, even though it was a Grand Slam. Um, anyway, that's a long detour. I don't know. I like Worlds in Tennis. It is very different from regular tennis, um, but I, I, I think it's fun. If you, if you see it in person, you'll like it. I don't know that it's going to be able to catch on unless they get a lot more big players playing. A lot. But we'll see. What All do you right. think? Did you get to see any of the finals? I didn't see the finals. I saw the uh, the set of matches, I think, before that, like the weekend, or like they were during, when Venus came back and beat Hingis. Okay. I saw that. Um, but I generally don't tune in simply because it is a really hard sport to get into, or to get into, like, on TV. Like, I could totally see it being interesting if you're there and fun and, you know, it's rowdy and there's actually energy and, and stuff like that. But uh, for me, I only tune in when I, this sounds horrible, but when I think that it's relevant mm-hmm. and it's only relevant to me if the big players are playing. Yeah. Uh, That's the way a lot of people are going to be. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I thought th- that said, though, I do think that this year World Team Tennis did feel a little different. It felt like, I think I think a lot of that had to do with Venus's commitment. Yeah. Um, and also just kind of where Venus is in her career. You know, I mean, she, this was her, you know, kind of comeback. Uh, you know, you wanted to see her on court because you hadn't seen her on court in months, you know. This, and This was the only title she clinched through singles all year. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, um, So yeah. So, so it was, um, you know. that. There was, were a few other big players, by the way. Like Kevin Anderson was in the <laughs> final for Sacramento, and he's like a top 30 guy. Yeah. And so the two of them, like, had some fun mixed exchanges, which is just cool because, you know. I, I don't know. I always like mixing changes. It's such so random pairing ATP and WTA people mm-hmm. in any sense, especially really tall ones. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they definitely built momentum this year. Mm-hmm. So definitely. in terms of just like, I feel like more tennis fans even are paying yeah. attention to World Team Tennis than they were last year. So next year will be an interesting year. Yeah, indeed. if they can build. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Next question. Okay. This one is from. These are all Twitter handles, by the way. Because that's how we do. We are. Very social media, if you haven't noticed. Exactly. Uh, So this is from AJD1987. Okay. Um, And and the question is, will Lee Na stay the course with Carlos Rodriguez now now that the honeymoon is over? Okay. Let you go first. I went first on the last one. Um, I think she will. I think that that Lee Na and Carlos are... Uh, in it for the long haul, primarily because if you listen, I mean, at least I think Lina is in it for the long haul. We'll see how Carlos feels, you know, after this year wraps up, if he's willing to stick with her through, you know, at least a part of 2013. Mm-hmm. But I really do think that when you talk to her about her coaching change, and, and I, you know, you were there, Ben, as well, like, what is motivating her to go with Carlos isn't necessarily wanting to play better isn't necessarily wanting to win titles or um all that sort of stuff in fact i think that she has a very realistic view of her career and and perspective that she's she's not getting younger that she is kind of in the the later stages of her career she doesn't have that many more years left she's already 30 etc etc but i think that the reason why she hired carlos is because you know she can't be coached by her husband it's not for them it's not healthy uh, from a personal perspective you know setting aside the career aspect of it so i don't see her going back to just being coached by her husband 
or co- which would be the equivalent of going coachless. Um, yeah. So I think that so long as she's willing to pay Carlos and Carlos is like willing to, you know, stick his neck out there. I think it's good for him. It's good publicity for him and his academies. You know, if he can kind of help her, you know, get back to even just a slam final. Um, and she's she has the tools. It's it's all there. Um, it's just a matter of pulling it all together. I, I I don't I don't know that I would say. I guess the honeymoon. The question sort of caught me a little off guard. They've been together so such a short time. Sure. They wouldn't think you know honeymoon phase can be over quite yet. I mean, it's a, I guess it's a I guess three months is a long honeymoon in real marriage terms. But they seem like they're still pretty new. I mean, they won they won the title in Cincinnati together. If you give them credit for doing Montreal over the phone. And they made the finals of that one. Um, and then she ran into the Laura Robson buzzsaw at the U.S. Open, which, you know, put in context of how well she played at that tournament can't be that bad. And I think more than results, when I, when I see Lena on press and stuff, it seems like the real improvement for her is just sort of in peace of mind that Carlos provides. She said something, she kept saying something, which it would seem like she'd almost never, like, thought of before, that Carlos said to her that was like, just because you play really well doesn't mean you're going to win. Like, sometimes the other player plays really well. And she said that several times. Made it think like it was, like, sort of a new mantra for her to be more relaxed. I think a lot of tennis players do lose sight of that. That, you know, just because you play well doesn't mean you're going to win. Yeah. And, you know, as much as people, you know, want to determine, like, look in the mirror and stay like, you know, if, I, if you play your game, you're going to win. That's all you need to do. Like, it doesn't work that way. Um, and so I think that sort of calm that he's introduced to her has been much needed and may have, you know, in its own way, tacked some years onto her career life expectancy in terms of how long she can go without getting burnt out because she need, did need to sort of mellow or get some perspective a little bit sometimes because she did seem fairly flustered at points. So I think they'll definitely hang around at least, at least through Australia. And we'll see because Carlos is sort of a coach for life in terms of what he did with Justin Ennen. This is true. I don't think he's one to bolt. No. He does seem to get along with them well. That is true. That is true. Yeah, no, he seems to have integrated himself in their, uh, into their team well. And, um, you know, I, I, I think you and I were both kind of impressed by their coaching timeouts when we saw them yeah. and heard them uh, in Cincinnati, that there was this, like, nice calm and ease about it. And, and what he was saying was dead right. Like, you know, also yeah. just tactically and everything. So it's a it's a coaching... Uh, it's a great communicator. Yeah. But. So it, it's a coaching situation that I look forward to. To I mean, I personally, I just hope that it, they stick together. Um, so so we'll see. But she did lose to Wozniacki, as we mentioned earlier, uh, yesterday in Tokyo in three sets. And that was a match that was so bad that I think people were saying that it looked like she was just retooling stuff. Yeah. No, that wasn't, which is what you should be doing if you are slam-oriented. That's what you should be doing in September, October, Asian Swing. Yep. You know, trying to get better, because winning this title, I guess she is in the race for Istanbul, mm-hmm. um, which we have some personal stake in, but um, we'll see. Yeah. Hopefully, this is the time to be working on things, and she changed her service motion and stuff, so. Yeah, I mean, even if, if I'm Lena, she's currently sitting in the number eight spot uh, for Istanbul, I'm kind of thinking screw Istanbul. Not that I'm not trying to make it, but that is not even on my radar. Like, yeah. I mean, like at this point, the people behind her have to catch her. It's not like she's like losing points or whatever. So, yeah. you know, and she didn't play well in the Asian swing last year either. So, you know, if she can do, you know, quarterfinals 
or or semis in Beijing, which is always doable for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she 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 should be in. Yeah. All right. Another question. Sure. Uh, next question is from Curtos, 07. Hi, Curtis. Um, it's uh, in honor of NFL replacement refs. Uh-huh. What are officiated tennis matches in recent memory and who are your favorite chair umpires i was thinking of this actually this week because the i'm sure everyone has heard this point i mean there's this horrible packers seattle game that basically seems like it led to the end of the lockout from what i heard is it ending officially uh, there's disputed i mean some people are saying that there there sounds like there's talks and okay like say, really renewed purpose in these talks though because of this game Arguably, although there's a, a subset of commentators who are saying that they think it's just an NFL PR ploy to make it sound like the talks are progressing in response to everything, but that nothing will actually get done. Gotcha. So, okay, so well, let's pretend something does get done for argument's right. sake. It will be effectively the Serena... Exactly. Uh, the Serena Capriati match from US Open 04, which was <laughs> so horrendous in terms of calls that it led to Hawkeye being implemented, essentially. Yep. really expedited that process. And this sort of was their US Serena Capriati 04 moment for the NFL, it seemed like. Um, so in terms of worst officiated matches, that one immediately, immediately springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there were so many bad calls in that match. And Mariana Alves, who was in the chair for that match, was remained somewhat of an infamous figure among a lot of tennis fans, even from, you know, eight years ago. You know, she's done a lot of uneventful matches since then. Because she was like overruling things that were on the far sideline and showed to be like inches in, so it was pretty inexplicable. So that's not super recent memory, I guess that match in terms of tennis. It's eight years ago. Other bad matches since then. But it's hard though because now that there's Hawkeye. Yeah, you can't have anything that bad. Like you're not really gonna have. And so now you're talking about judgment calls, right? So you know, some people might argue the foot fault call on Serena. Some people might argue the Hindu. Connor Nooney in Nalbandian, Australia. Yeah, that was the one that came to my mind was Kate, was Connor Nooney against Nalbandian just because in terms of a judgment call, that was just a really bad one. Like, how do you just not uh, let David Nalbandian challenge that serve yeah. in, like that late in the fifth set in that tight of a match and say that he took too long? I'm sorry, that's baloney. Like, you let the guy challenge the call. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, but there really aren't that many... That's sort of, a lot in a large way, that human element of the game has been sort of removed from tennis. Yeah, because the calls um, get corrected. Although, I mean, Australia, the, the, offici- the line calling was horrible this year in Australia. It is, it was, yeah. There was that one match in uh, Stanford. I don't know if you were at. It was like Kirstea versus... Uh, yeah, um, yes, Kirst- that's that Kirstea. Kirstea versus somebody. And it, she got like seven challenges in a row right in the first set. And arguably, like, there was that, uh, you know, uh, Kirilenko, Stozer, epic tiebreak from last year's U.S. Open, mm-hmm. where Kirilenko, like, in the tiebreak, I think, used Hawkeye on, like, you know, three or four, like, match points and, like, got the call right. Like, the call was wrong. So, you know, it happens. But now with Hawkeye, I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, incredulity, like, in the moment, like, you know, when a player is vindicated or whatever, you're like, oh, that was a horrible call, and then you move on. Yeah, you really do get to move on a way you couldn't before. Um, I'm trying to remember, like, if there's matches I've seen that were not on Hawkeye courts that might have blown up. 
Um, but nothing is coming to mind. Probably because I've just seen too much tennis to be able to keep it well indexed at this point. Very true. But then, and then um, favorite umpire, Ben? My favorite chair umpire, um, the one who I've, I've written about and gotten to know a little bit, would be Ava Azdaraki, um, who was in the middle of one other you know controversy, I guess, with, with Serena at the last year's U.S. Open final, with the hindrance call when Serena shouted out in the middle of a point. And now Serena, when she looks back on it, says that she just grunted, which isn't what happened at all. Yeah, but her revisionist history is a bit... Uh, whatever whatever helps Serena cope. I mean, okay. But that's just not what happened. She did not grunt. She shouted, come on, before the ball hit Sam Sosa's racket. So yeah, my, my pick will be Ava But there are, a lot of, there are a lot of good ones. And there's more and more. There seems to be a lot of sort of new chair empires coming up lately. Since there's sort of a new crop emerging, you got... Um, well, I'll, I'll let you. I know who your favorite is, so I'll let you. <laughs> Beth does know who my favorite is. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, but Julie Kendley. I think Kendley, yeah. Kendley. Um, she is my favorite chair umpire. She's currently in Tokyo. Keep an eye out for her. You will recognize her because she is a chair umpire who does not look like, excuse my language, she gives a fuck about what's going on <laughs> about court right now. Like, not that she doesn't care, like, she's totally, like, paying attention, whatever, but, like, when players come at her, she kind of has this look of like, what? Like, why? Like, go away. Can like, we not, please? She fly. Like, I have dinner reservations at Nobu. You know, let's get this going. Yeah. Um, and so just for her facial expressions and her unwillingness to, like, cower to players or mm-hmm. be bullied, I love her. We haven't really talked a lot about chair empires on this show, considering how much we sort of talk about them. True. In general. I mean, there's a lot of big ones that have their, there's a resonant voice of Cotter Nooney, which is popular with a lot of people, um, has been remixed by a friend of yours also. Yeah. But can we, uh, this is my take on, on Cater, which is that love his voice. Great, great soundtrack to it. To mm-hmm. I don't think he's that great of an umpire. No, I don't think so. But I don't think people really judge on that all the time. I guess. They judge sort of more on assumed personality. I guess. I mean, he's dope. I mean, he's a really cool dude. Like, yeah. if you've ever, like, talked to him or get to know him, like, he's awesome. But, like, I, yeah, like, there are so many, like, almost on a match-by-match basis. I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that is um, part part of the chair umpire's function, or functionally, in the match. It's just the narrator of the match. Right. You know? And there's no better narrator. sort of MC it. There's no better narrator than Muhammad Liani. Yes, and he's so emphatic. He really, like, he gets much louder on break points and stuff, <laughs> which is clearly not in the rule book for what you're supposed to do. But he's like, if it's just like a thing, it'd be like, you know, 30 love. Then it'd be like 15, 40 or something. And it's just like, okay. It wakes you up, which is good. Cause sometimes you sort of, you know, so, can zone out a little bit. You're like, oh, this is a big point. Okay, thanks, Mo. Appreciate it. Your hand, he's guiding you through the match. Yeah, he is. Great. So, yeah, he was he got roast to fame through the Isner Mahout match, which, you know, it's a long time to sit in a chair. Those chairs aren't very comfortable. I don't know if you've ever been in one, but they're not comfy. I have not climbed in one. Yeah, I only did once. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, so there's a bunch of other chair empires. Um, yeah, but pretty much a good chair empire doesn't make themselves too, you know, doesn't make themselves a part of the match, which you really don't get very much, I don't think. No, good group. I, it's like the replacement refs. You don't know what you got till it's gone. It's true. And I also think that with um with officials, 
it's like the CIA, like, you know, our, our triumphs are private and our failures are public. Yeah. Like if nothing happened, if they did an awesome job, you just don't notice. Yeah, you really don't. And if they do a horrible job, that's the only thing you can talk about. One of the interesting Chair Empire quirks um, is from another one, another WTA um, who's been getting a lot more big matches lately, is Maria Chichak, mm-hmm. who um, doesn't pronounce the last <laughs> syllable of a lot of scores. Like when the score ends in Y, she doesn't pronounce it. So it'll Just be like 15 third. Yeah. Uh, 30 fourth. Yeah. Like, what? Or like, you know, game other rank. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, but it's weird. Like she'll, but she will say like 15 completely. Sure. There's, there's a weird sort of pattern to her speech that I don't entirely understand, but it's enjoyable for matches. You need some, you need, you need matches need subplots sometimes. <laughs> And the umpires can provide it. Absolutely. For sure. Okay. Another Next question? question? Sure. We have a question here about Taylor Townsend. We actually addressed all of the Taylor Townsendness. Yeah. Last uh, in, show. In our last show. So you'll hear more of that when that's posted. So <laughs> skip over that. And a question from Renaissance. Oh, hello, Renaissance. Wozniacki scored her first top 10 win of, the, of 2012. Could this be the first in the curious case of Carolina's or Carolina's comeback? Carolina's comeback. Carolina. Anyway. Carolina. I don't know. I mean, I watched part of that match, and I, I, I didn't see any. I saw barely any of Seoul. From what I heard, it was, you know, she didn't play great players. And the times she did, they were sort of up and down matches. And then she came out and hit only six winners against Lina in her win last night. However, that is what vintage Wozniacki used to do when she won. I mean, if she really has sort of reverted all the way back to playing just pure defense, that pays the bills. You know, that worked. And it seemed to be like sometimes when she got sort of lost in being aggressive or not being aggressive, where she really got blown out. So if this is the new Caroline, or Carolina, Carolina Wozniacki, uh, then yeah, and yeah, I think that this can be a uh, a turning point for her if she sticks to that. It might not be pretty to watch, um, but it did work. It did win her a whole lot of matches, and I don't know if the tour really has evolved past not being able to beat that style. But have but you mean she's turned the corner insofar as she's made a U-turn? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she was heading the wrong direction. I mean, she was results-wise. Results. So if the other road was taking you higher and you know, this comes into question about what her sort of, how short-term her goals are. Yeah, I mean, I guess that gets back to, I think, um, you and I had this conversation on a podcast a while ago about Caroline, and, or maybe it was Toss, I don't remember what it was, but kind of saying that, you know, she does, for her to get to become a better player, to, mm-hmm. to develop the tools that she needs to in order to win slams and and not be a punchline you know it's gonna take a commitment to lose matches playing the way as opposed to winning matches playing the wrong way and so yeah i mean if if what if if what because yeah i i did not enjoy watching the lena wozniacki match last night i i didn't but again you're dead right she won you know and, and that's what caroline used to do she used to win like, it was very rarely ever pretty, but she won. She was always the last woman standing. So, you know, if she starts winning matches and getting her confidence back into the off season, and then is willing to, like, go back and 
continue to retool, then great. But if this is just a reversion, a complete reversion to like, it wasn't broken, let's not fix it. Let's, you know, screw all of this aggressive counter punching talk. My favorite quote from her after her win in Seoul was that she said she was doing a really good job turning defense to offense and offense to defense. <laughs> Sorry, really turning offense to defense. <laughs> That's, that's, that's pretty great. Perfect Wozniacki quote. <laughs> yeah, I guess you kind of do do that, don't you? Yeah, um, you have a way. I mean, you'll have a, a, a shot that she just could absolutely clock. Any other player would hit it for a winner. And she, like, dinks it back into the court and runs back to the baseline. That's <laughs> yeah. offense to defense, and she's very good at it. She, it, is, it is her signature shot, so to speak. Um, more, than, more than we were talking about this also a little bit with Caroline recently. At some point, people point to her back end like it's a weapon. It's not a weapon. It's just not as bad as her forehand. It's not. But, but she makes it work. I mean, like, these are things that she was number one with these shots. So It's hard to say. I, 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 I yeah, I, I don't put much stock in her soul win, you know, because she didn't beat anyone in the top 20 other than Kaya Kanepi, and it was Kaya's first tournament back from, like, not playing a match since the French Open. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Uh, and, the thing, and the thing is with Wozniacki is that we've seen her win playing differently. Like, when she beat Serena at Miami this year, that was, like, a huge win. Wound up being pretty isolated in terms of her trajectory this year. But, like, she stepped in, she was really pushing Serena around, hitting really deep, um, maybe not like a total number of winners or whatever, but she was forcing the issue constantly in that match. And, and um, then never really did that again, from what we could see. I didn't see a lot of her on clay this year, just because she wasn't making it to a lot of televised rounds. But Right. Yeah, no, so so we'll see. I mean, who knows? I mean, the kid could go and win. I mean, she has the capacity to win any tournament. Yeah. She should, she could win Tokyo. She could win Tokyo. She could win Beijing. I mean, you know, like, you just... I mean... She's proven that she can win these level of tournaments. Yeah. Um, and so, and, you know, everybody else is. So when you have players like Petra Kvitova who shows up in Tokyo and then bows out in the first round or, or second round and, you know, Lee Na and, you know, a bunch of other players who you can never, I mean, Sharapova's looked horrible. I yeah, think really horrible. She's been scratching her way through. Uh, but you do, you do have players who are kind of inconsistent around you. Like things can break her way and she can win a big title and, you know, get the confidence again. But the question is the confidence in what? The confidence in her old defensive game, which will only lead you to have the same questions about her that you had, that I had, or will only lead me to have the same questions that I had about her when she was number one, which is that she doesn't have the weapons to win a slam. Right. Or do you, you know, take the hits and, and play the right way and commit to improving as a player as opposed to regressing? That is, a you know, that's the question, but... We'll see. Is she still working with Thomas Johansson? Apparently, but it's like by correspondence because he's never there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, she did look good at Wimbledon the first match she was with him, even though she lost to Pashik. Yeah. There, that was a good match. It was. Um, okay. Yeah. Next okay. question. Time for one last question. Uh, yes, one last question. What explains. Uh, this is from Ova Fanboy. Oh, hi, Ova Fanboy. Uh, the question is, what explains the rise of young talents like Robson and Vekic while others like Garcia continue to flounder? Oh, I was hoping he was going to mention Putin Seva because he's a big fan of hers, I know. And she is young. But I don't know. 
I mean, I actually have never seen Vekic play. I think you have? I have not. Okay. Um, so I can't say a whole lot about her game. But Robson, I think, in this recent sort of uptick, has really sort of learned, has sort of a wise beyond her years um, patience on court, or like a knowing her shot selection, when to go for, when not to. It's really, really prudent. And with Gar- Caroline Garcia, it hasn't been. And I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's really a, one easy rule for this. I mean, there's so many factors into why certain players make it and certain players don't. And they're also, all three of them are still so young. So uh, very- you definitely can't say it that Caroline Garcia hasn't, will keep floundering forever. And she's, you- what, like 18? Right. And you can't say that Laura will continue to rise without... No speed bumps you know i mean i think that for me um at least in the things that i've read about donna vekic uh which is really kind of the only exposure uh i have to her i think i maybe saw her play as a junior but i could be wrong okay the um, brits have also claimed her by the way oh my god let's not don't get me started on that <laughs> i'm like all of a sudden my twitter timeline is like blowing up about donna vekic and i'm like why in the world are all these Brit journalists like tweeting about a random 16 year old Croat? And I'm like, Oh, okay. David Felgate. British coach. Okay. Coach based in London. You guys can get access to her and to her coach. And therefore you get written about. Sometimes it's as simple as that to be frank. Happened in the States as well. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, either there's something, maybe there's something in the London water. I don't know. But uh, Hmm. But from what I can tell, I mean, with, with Laura and with Beckage, like, they're very mature uh, for their ages. Yeah. Even just, like, I, I think I saw a couple videos with Beckage, like, talking and speaking. Like, um, she seems to be pretty, got a pretty good head on their shoulders. Although we'll see, you know, how that develops when there's greater expectation. But and she's had nowhere near the big stage experience that Laura has. Right. Um, and Laura got at a young age. They have that sort of junior pedigree right and with laura i mean and again i mean i think we talked about this in the last podcast she's because of she benefits because she's been around like forever and she also it's also kind of like the tag against her so in other words like she's been dealing with all of this pressure and expectation since she was 14 years old yeah and so now she's 18 so like if you think about it like her other players who may be get some sort of recognition within their home country at like 18, 19, 20. And then four years later, they break through. Like that makes sense. And I don't know, like that's kind of what Laura's doing now. We talk about like John Isner, like not having, not being younger than the average 27 year old on tour. Laura is definitely older than the average 18 year old. Exactly right. And so, you know, that maturity helps, that perspective helps having to kind of make, not really having the freedom to kind of flounder with no one watching is it, like that's not really an option for her. So I think that she's kind of had to kind of accelerate as opposed to like a Caroline Garcia who, yeah, she flounders and maybe a small sub, a tiny subset of the tennis notices. But, you know, otherwise no one really does. I don't even know if the FFT even cares. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it's tough. I mean, it's just hard to explain. There's no real, if we, if we knew the answers to why people succeeded and didn't, we would get high paying coaching jobs or something. Clearly, we're not qualified for that. Talent. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, if you go, if you see, if you ever watch Caroline Garcia practice and just watch her hit a ball, the kid's just a beautiful ball striker. But she's her penchant to get nervous and choke is pretty rough. And then yeah. you have like other, 
the Putzes of the world and the um, Cromanchoas and them who probably are lacking a little bit on the talent side, but yeah. make it through pure grit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was our last question. So you want to take a number? Yes. Yeah, so we're going to reintroduce our beloved take a number segment. Or take a number between one and a hundred and see which player corresponds to that on each of the ATP and WTA rankings and talk about those players a little bit and they'll wrap this show up because it's gonna be a mini show. So, Courtney, you ready with WTA rankings? Yep. Okay, here we go. Our number between one and a hundred is seventy-five. Which I feel like we've had before. Um, not the number, but we'll see if we've had the players before. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, mine's not great either. Okay, well, this will be quick. Um, Courtney, which woman do we have at number 75 on WTA? On number 75, uh, we have a Russian. Uh, a Russian that normally doesn't get talked about, and who, I will be honest, I couldn't probably pick out of a lineup. Other than, to say, other than to say she kind of looks like a cross between... Well, she looks like not, uh, Nadia Petrova's kid sister. Uh, but it's Alexandra Panova. I was afraid of that when we were talking about anonymous Russians. Okay. So that's who we have. Her dance partner is whom? Her dance partner um, is uh, somebody who's been around for a while, I feel like. Um, used to be ranked higher than 75, but not by a whole lot. Used to be more of sort of a relevant presence. Um, I feel like he's had some decent challenger results lately, which is why he's ranked this high at all. And his name is Simone Bolelli. Oh, Simone Bolelli. I love See, you, you seem excited about that. So why 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 is that exciting for you? Uh, he's younger than I thought. He's only 26. Yeah, because he's cute. Like, that's mm-hmm. literally all. I mean, I, I mean, I've seen him obviously play before. And um, whenever I'm in Rome, I always end up seeing him practicing with, like, Fabio Fognini. <laughs> Um, at this one court that's like my favorite like practice court um, mm-hmm. so I see him all the time um, you know he was he had a really like standout year I want to say 2008 2009 somewhere around there and then injury took him off and then he got married I think last year um, but yeah I thought he was older than 26 as well Yeah, he had a career high of 36 in uh, February 2009 and was outside the top 100 by a ways last year. So he's had a good year getting back to 75. I've seen him around a fair amount. He sort of looks like an Italian pirate. Yeah. A little bit. He's sort of a pirate look going on. Um, and, yeah. Um, i trying to think. He speaks Spanish very well, which I think, I guess a lot of tennis players, you know, have uh, multiple languages. I hear him speaking Spanish all the time. I wouldn't know he was Italian if I didn't, you know, know who he was. Nice one-handed backhand, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice, nice, you know, sort of typical Italian-French game, you know, very pretty, not always, you know, the shortest road to, you know, being efficient or whatever. I actually saw him play a really, really long match in Australia this year um, in the qualies where he won 10-12, uh, 12-10 in the third uh, I could say, you know, like three sets, but still best of two in qualies against someone named Konstantin Kravchuk of Russia, which was like a brutal match. It was really hot out. And then he lost to Freddie Nielsen in the last round of qualies. He's someone who's, you know, somebody who you see 
I feel like he gets drawn against big players in first rounds a lot. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And so he's sort of a guest star or, you know, a supporting player in the first round. Not not maybe a big chance to make that many deep runs at big tournaments, but solid supporting player. He made the final, he won some challenger event in Italy this year, made the finals at another one in San Marino, um, which is actually a really big challenger. Uh, so that's what got him back into the top 100. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's who he is. He didn't play the U.S. Open for some reason. Uh, which I find it interesting. Even though he played, like, around that time. Yeah. So I don't know if it was an injury thing or just didn't want to make the trip to go to the U.S. Yeah, don't know. But, yeah, no, he's, uh, he seems like a nice enough guy. Yeah. So. So, that's that. So what do we have on Panova? Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's see. Didn't there used to be someone named Tatiana Panova? That was a different person, right? I would presume that it's a different person. Yeah, that sounds like a different person. Well, she she kind of really hasn't done much this year. Uh, Did she win a title? Not this year. Oh, wait. Hold on. Career review. She made the final of Bogota. That's what it was. Okay. That Bogota tournament, there was like nobody top 100 there. And that is pretty much what is keeping her in the top 100 because um, she's lost in the first round of, I want to say, let's see, she lost the first round of Guangzhou. What is the cash net? But, like, pretty much she's lost in the first round of, like, a crap load of WTA tournaments. Okay. New idea. You want a new number? This number, this number is kind of a dud. Where is it told Okay. Ready for a new number? Sure. Here we go. New number. 15. Oh. See, random.org always delivers the second time. Oh. Maybe that's the thing. We gotta do random.org, like, randomly how many times do we pick? How long until we get a low number? Okay. Now we're doing better. Okay. Nope. Men's side. Got, got plenty to say? Yeah. Okay. Number 15 on the WTA side. Kaya Kanepi. Okay. Number 15 on the ATP side is, this might be a career high ranking for him, I'm not sure, close to it anyway, is Milos Ronich. Nice. So, let's start with Kaya, because Kaya we probably have less to say about. Um, Kaya has made three Grand Slam quarterfinals in her career. One, one at each of everything but the uh, Australian Open. And so, which a lot of people probably have never heard of her, or like more casual, or don't really know who she is. A more casual fan, so... She's stealthily very, you know, consistent. I'm actually surprised she's ranked as high as that, because she hasn't played a lot this year. No, she has not, but she won Brisbane uh, to start the year, so that that's somewhat helpful with her, her points. Uh, but yeah, 16 tournaments, and she's ranked 15 in the world. So 16, the only person who's played fewer tournaments than her in the top 20 is Serena at 15. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that says something about her, her consistency and when she plays. Uh, she was injured... Uh, she famously took out Caroline um, in a long, weird, drawn-out match uh, at the French Open, mm-hmm. and then after the and to make the quarterfinals, and then that she kind of disappeared. She was off the tour uh, with a heel injury, um, and so she missed Wimbledon, she missed the Olympics, and she missed the U.S. Open, and just made her return last. Week. Um, making the finals of Seoul, losing, only winning one game, Caroline, uh, in the finals. Um, she was upset this week by Jamie Hampton. Yeah, good win for Jamie. Huge win for Jamie. So, you know, I mean, 
what's to read into it really other than like it's her second back you know like she's she's still trying to figure things out but I've always really liked Kaya like I don't know if it was because I think at some point like maybe like three years ago I remember seeing some Q&A with her where they were asking her about like her favorite music or something like that and you know how most people like give like your typical top 10 top 10 pop answer Rihanna 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 and Rihanna um, she was like, oh, I really love Tiesto. <laughs> and okay. saying that, like, Tiesto is, like, all she listens to. And I was like, that's kind of cool. I can dig that. So, um, so she's kind of always been, along with, like, Petco, my, like, weird indie hipster kid in my head. Like, there you go. So, yeah, Kaya from Estonia, really talented, big hitter, big forehand. Um, I don't know, I always liked the kid. Her coach has a really amusing haircut. Have you ever seen him in the stands? But it's like bangs, really, really long bangs, that like practically go down like past his eyes. And they're always very well combed. I don't know. I find it amusing. So if you're if you're watching a Kaya match, maybe that coach still has the same haircut he did three years ago, and you can enjoy that. There you go. So Milos, Milos, we talked about on the show before, is really considered the next big thing by just about everybody. It's fair to say. And rightfully so. No, I don't think that it's hype. Explain why you think he's legit. Well, I mean, I think he has the tools. I think that he's also, like, Milos, while we still wait for the big breakthrough, like, at least I do, you know, mm-hmm. really post a significant result of the slam, um, but nor at, like, Masters tournaments, you know, so yeah. it's a steady, you know, steady progress. Um, he's getting better. He's, he's you know, this this year was really his first true full year on the ATP tour. Last year he was injured for a significant of it. So this was the first full year. Um, So in terms of tennis years, I kind of see him as like a later bloomer, Um, like this kind of the beginning. Um, But yeah, just that, you know, even as he made the big breakthrough, he's been pretty consistently like solid. And he's a guy that, if you know he's playing in the in the tournament, like you you look for where his name is in the draw, because yeah. he's a guy who is capable of, of pulling off the upset. So, you know he's already scored a top four win, beating beating Andy Murray in Barcelona. Um, so you know he hasn't just you know, worse surface for Milos, and uh, and he's come within a few points of beating Roger Federer like a gazillion times this year. Um, I think three times this year, which is close yeah. to if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's there's a lot to like in his game, and, and his serve clearly causes people problems. I like his mentality, even-keeled guy, um, but very intense. Like, it's all seething underneath. Yeah, definitely. He's still kind of got that hot blood. But, uh, yeah, no, I think that there's just, there's, there's, there's a lot to like in Milos, in Milos's game. And Milos really... Um... Talk about him not having a full year last year. He really wasn't on the radar at all, even as recently as 2010. He wasn't somebody who was in the pipeline whatsoever. And so now he's top 20. And even if some people say, oh, you know, he hasn't made quarters of a slam. He hasn't really done well at a Masters, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he is 21. He is by far the youngest person in the top 20, if not top 50. No, Atomic. And... Oh, Atomic. Okay. Was Atomic top 50? No. Because he's still he's gonna have those points from Australia with him. Okay, yeah. Um, 
Well, there's a lot less question marks surrounding right. Ronich than Tomich, let's say, at least anyway. Boy. And uh, then Ryan Harrison is also really young, and Dimitrov, the four that sort of get talked about together. Um, but I think Ronich definitely is the one who's done the best. He's the oldest of those four, but he's definitely the one who's done the best by far also. Um, and I think he's just ready to make a big move. He's playing, you know, it's a very big deal in Canada. He gets a lot of attention there because they haven't had a men's tennis player do this well in generations, if ever, on single side. I mean, Daniel Nestor does well in doubles, but not the same thing. So he could be a big deal. And, you know, has his own personal PR guy now. Mm-hmm. With Austin Nunn, who works for the w, uh, ATP. Just uh, left and is now doing. We'll be doing personal PR for Milos, so that's some inside baseball talk. But it does mean that you know he's ready to be more of a thing. So, but you, it's already been like kind of hinted to, you know, like for a guy who's like a Canadian tennis player, and obviously 15 now. But even with when he was outside of the top 20, top 30, like he was getting a significant amount of like play. Yeah. You know, like whether it was showing up to like premieres or like Toronto Film Festival or Fashion Week or whatever it was like last week, you know, he was like hanging out with like, and he's in these like ad campaigns with like people who are like legit celebrities. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty impressive. And, and um, I have to say that Milos is one of my favorite pressers on the ATP side. Um, and I will admit that I don't have a lot of them. No, he's good. He's a good talk. He's very blunt. He's blunt, and he's and he's he's willing to talk like the technical, but also talk you know kind of the broader kind of perspectives type stuff. Um, and it's 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 always really well thought out. It's a thoughtful answer. Um, his voice crack still amuses me. To a know. lot. His voice cracks a lot. Incredible. Still every sentence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he's, I think he's just great in press. And so he's a, he's a, he's an easy guy to talk to, I think. Um, yeah. which is good. Um, his rank, just talking about his ranking coming out of nowhere. Um, at the end of, sorry, before the Australian Open 2011, he was ranked number 152. Mm-hmm. By, um, April of 2011, he was ranked number 28. That's ridiculous. That is really ridiculous. It takes people, like, years. If that's somebody's, like, two-year stretch, that's a great two years to move that far. And he did it in, like, less than four months. And then it's, so. he's into he's into the top 15. I mean, you know, like, it, the, the ability to climb the ranking, it's, like, exp- in terms of difficulty, is, like, exponential. Yeah. You know, like, it's easier to climb from, from 300 to 100 than it is to climb from 40 to 10. But, oh, definitely, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, so his ability to just kind of keep keep plugging away is, is pretty impressive. So, you know, if he has some, if he saw some legs in him, you know, in the fall season, I mean, he plays really well indoor. So, you know, we'll see. Paris might be too quick of a surface for him, but um, between Paris and, and uh, I don't know, maybe another indoor tournament somewhere, he could post some good results. And Yeah. He's one of those big guys who doesn't seem, the sort of newer generation big guys, who doesn't seem to do as well on grass yeah. with the low bending. Not his favorite surface. Yeah. More of a hardcore guy. Um, with with sort of the lack or question marks around any, like, next big American right now, um, how much do you think, if, let's say, we don't get a top five American man in the next, I don't know, five years, which is entirely possible, what are the odds that U.S. commentators and fans really start to embrace the Canadian guy like he's one of us, to sort of steal him? <laughs> it really, I think that really depends on him. I yeah. Think- depends on whether or not you avail yourself of 
it. Like, you know, like, for example, like a Sharapova, who's obviously Russian, but like, you know, for the most part, the way that she's marketed, the way that she markets her in the States uh, has opened up the, the, the American market to her. Yeah. Um, and she and she kind of does that. So it's really, you know, if Milos is content with just like being in like, you know, Tennis Canada commercials and like whatever. Tim Hortons. And TSN and whatever up, you know, north of the border, then yeah. be the king of Canada and never really be embraced by Americans. But to the extent that he, and also I think a strong showing at the U.S. Open is helpful as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's really kind of up to him, like how he wants to market himself. I mean, he's somebody who really, I mean, he could be really embraced in Europe as well. Yeah. Even maybe more so than in the States. Yeah, he's got he's got a lot of different roots, a lot of different places. I mean, he speaks great English and Montenegrin or Serbian. I don't know how different that is from Serbian, but I mean, not that Serbia is a big market worldwide. But um, yeah, he has the tools to be big thing, mm-hmm. big thing at six foot five. So that's that's Milos. That's number fifteen, and that should do it for our show. Um, in the words of Canadians, we'll see you next time. Hey, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're just gonna leave it at that because there's no no salvaging that. By the way, we don't think we mentioned it. We have a new Facebook page, so if you look up "No Challenges Remaining" or NCR Tennis or whatever on Facebook, find us, like us. We just want to be liked, so yeah, and we'll post new stuff on there for you guys. So it'll be another way to follow. And we'll do polls. Us and stuff like that because not everybody has Tumblr and not everybody has Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty much everybody has Facebook nowadays, so in, just in general, it seems to be the easiest way to kind of keep everyone apprised of our goings-ons. And you guys and, and you guys really do need to know what we're up to at all times, I'm sure. Absolutely. Because yes. it's very, very interesting. I don't know if you heard, but, you know, I woke up at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon today. It was pretty great. Yeah, that's pretty great. You did, we didn't, you know, Instagram our breakfast or anything, but we're not like arrogant. We're just saying no, no. We're just, we're just awesome. 